All right, folks, grab your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 17 today. John chapter 17, we're going to look at five short verses, verses 1 through 5. Uh, if you're new with us, we've been going through the Gospel of John for several months. Actually, we started in February, inching our way through it, only taking a couple of breaks as we uh, peer into John's record of, of Jesus. A gospel is a spiritual biography of the life of Jesus. And so that's what we find in the Gospel of John. And John's is a little different than the ones that preceded Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in that those sort of give a chronology of Jesus' life, whereas John's Gospel shows us snapshots of Jesus as he encounters various people. John uses the word signs a lot, um, basically displaying the miracles that Jesus did. And John has one intent. He wants people to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that having known him, been exposed to him, we might have life in his name. That's what John is trying to portray to us, that Jesus is God. And we'll see a little bit of that in our in our text today. So grab your Bibles, John chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, down the middle column, there's a couple of Bibles underneath those seats there. You're, willing to, you're welcome to use that and have it if you don't have a Bible. We're going to read these five verses out loud together. Here we go. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to another day. We thank you for new grace and new mercy. And uh, we're people who need it. And we're not afraid to confess our need. We need you as we gather today as individuals and more importantly, as we gather as your church. Lord, would you let us know that we have been in your presence. Would you let us know that you're amongst us? God, we could we have a not a funny feeling. God, don't give us tingles. But Lord, would you through your word um, make yourself known that you are here teaching, reproving, correcting us and bringing us into righteousness as we gain a fuller appreciation for who you are in John's gospel and more importantly, what you've come to do in our life and in the world that we live in. Lord, we honor your word. We sit under it today and we pray, God, that as you uh, as you pray to the Father, that you might be glorified, that you would in turn glorify him, God, that we might sense just a little bit of your glory, both your earthly glory, but more importantly, the glory that you had before you came to earth. And we pray that in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So we, we approach John chapter 17, and you know, there's only a few more chapters left in the Gospel of John, and so we're, we're close to the end. John 17 is unique, and I know I say that a lot. All these is in, I, I gotta stop saying that, but John 17 really is unique, uh, in this Gospel because it's the, it's the last great prayer of Jesus, and we've seen a few prayers uh, that Jesus has uttered to, to God the Father. This is his last one. This is his longest prayer. I would, I would say this is the true Lord's prayer. When, we, you know, when the disciples asked Jesus, as replicated in the other Gospels, Lord, teach us how to pray, he taught them a pattern of how to pray. And we know that as our Father who art in heaven. You know, we know that. This is truly the Lord's prayer. This is Jesus praying to God the Father. Not only is it uh, uh, his longest prayer, it's, it's probably the most epic because this is Jesus praying in, in his last hours. Um, think of it like this. You know the difference between you praying as you're sitting down at, you know, Moe's or going out to eat or even, even at your, your own dining room table and you're, you're giving thanks. You're praying God. You're giving, you're, you're saying grace. Lord, bless this food, you know, to the nourishment I bought in Jesus' name. And you dig in. Jesus ain't doing that. 
right? Because he's getting ready to die. He knows that his last, last hours are upon him. And so he's praying as if he's a man at, at the end of his life. And he's reflecting over all those things that he's been tasked to do. And he's looking at, you know, have I fulfilled that task? He's presenting that to the father as a man on his dying bed, so to speak. He's pouring out his soul. This is the kind of prayer that Jesus is praying. And so we're going to spend three weeks in John chapter 17, because I think it's, that's the appropriate thing to do, like a mini series on prayer. But more importantly, that's how the, the chapter is broken up as, as we read through it. Um, just so you know, uh, you know, Christmas is coming. All right. So it'd be it'd be weird to sort of like talk about Jesus death when 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 we talk, we should be talking about Jesus birth. So we'll take a break from John during the month of December. We'll actually celebrate, you know, with with. Christmas artifacts and a Christmas Christmas messages through the month of December, and then we'll cross over to the new year, and we'll finish the chapter, of the, the the Gospel of John, in January. So there's three themes in John chapter 17 that we'll look at in successive weeks. One theme per week, and the first is is simply this. Today we're going to look at Jesus praying for Himself. He does that in verses one through five. You got a glimpse of that as you were just reading along with uh, the text. And our theme is going to be glory. Uh, next week, we'll look at Jesus praying for the disciples, not necessarily us as disciples, but these particular 11 disciples that are with him as they uh, as they are past the mantle of of starting the early church and really spreading the gospel throughout the known world. And uh, the theme there is going to be mission verses six through 19. And lastly, uh, on the 29th of November, November, we'll look at Jesus praying for you and me verses 20 to 26. And the theme there is unity. What we get throughout the whole uh, chapter here, John chapter 17, is, is we get to see the inner life of Jesus. We, we get to see him um, expressing the, I mean, the, the, the very internal thoughts that he would have as a man, but also as, as a God man. And I would offer to you the reason why John records these words in such great detail of, of, of Jesus is they're meant to steer us in our own prayers. Think about it this way. We, because we're getting to see the inner part of Jesus, we get to see what he values, what's important to him. And if it's important to Jesus and we're following him as our master, these, the, what, what he values, we should value as well. What he does, it would be wise for us to do the same thing. And so what does Jesus value? What's, what's he all about? In this text, and in, in particularly in these five verses that we'll see, the first thing that we see is, is Jesus is about the glory of God. Jesus wanted to live in such a way that the Father received glory. Now, here, here's the thing about glory. Glory is an abstract word. I don't, I don't know. I've been in the church world for a long time, so I might use that word more than most. But I mean, how many of y'all actually use the word glory in a normal work week, like talking to your friends? Like probably none of us. Right. So glory can be hard to define unless you're like reading the Bible, trying to work. Y'all laughing at that? It's like some of y'all use the word. Peter. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I spent a whole weekend. Peter and I were in Dallas this week. So, yeah, Peter uses that word glory. Peter uses other words, too, though. Um, so here's glory. In the Old Testament, glory meant uh, something that carried weight. Uh, think of a, a block of gold. It has, it has just enormous value, something of great importance. And I can use this word because it's, we're, talking, we're talking about God here. It's transcendent. It, it, um, it goes beyond the life that we know. That's glory. But let me give you a more simple idea of what glory is. Glory is it's God's infinite worth. It's his beauty. It's his greatness. And his, it's his goodness. This is what the psalmist says. Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This is a psalm of David. It's a beautiful psalm. And David is saying that the heavens show us the infinite goodness and greatness of God. We look up in the sky. And we, I mean, our lips drop. It's like, man, look at the enormity of all that that God has created. Uh, I flew to Dallas and we flew above the clouds and just to look out and see um, see something that man could not have made. Those fluffy clouds. Thank God it wasn't raining. It was just fluffy. You saw the sun shining through beams coming out underneath the bottom. It was just it was glorious. You couldn't make it. You couldn't describe it. It was just there. And it was one of those awe 
wow kind of kind of things. Our hearts are moved by that. It's like seeing uh, waking up to a beautiful day, going to sleep and you're at the beach and you see a gorgeous sunset. That's really what glory kind of kind of means, except we apply that to God. And, and I would argue when we're seeing the beauty of nature, like David in the psalm, we're experiencing the glory of God. We're seeing part of his goodness and, and who he is manifested in his world. The heavens are shouting the infinite glory, beauty, and goodness of God. And so the, the very thing that dominated Jesus' life was this, was this idea. The idea that, that God is glorious and that I should be attributing glory to him. And that's what we see in verse one and five. Verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, what words? All the words that he said prior to verse 17 to this intimate group. He's spent uh, obviously three and a half years with them. But in the last uh, hours, he's been in the upper room and he's basically um, consoling them because he's he's telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to leave you alone, but I'm going to leave you the Holy Spirit to be with you as another helper After he says all that, he lifts up his eyes to heaven. And John records Jesus words, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Skip down to verse five. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so Jesus, Jesus is requesting God to glorify him that he might in turn glorify God. That sounds kind of weird to us, doesn't it? Um, in fact, if, if any of you did anything like that, like asking for glory, then I would tell you you're probably narcissistic and way arrogant, and we would, we would stone you, okay? No one, no one does that. Like, like, give me some glory. I deserve it. Um, there's no man here on earth that deserves glory like that. Um, it sounds strange to us that Jesus is praying like that because we don't pray like that. But really, when you look at Jesus' life, he's the only one really that could, that could do that. Because Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is also God. Jesus is fully man, fully God. How is that so? I don't know. I don't know. No one knows. We Theologians have written a lot about it. We even got a word for it. Hypostatic union. How he's, you know, a, a man, also God. But honestly, none, none of us know. But because we believe that this is God's word to us revealed in who God is, the Bible con- conveys to us that Jesus is 100 percent man and 100 percent God. He's 100 percent man. He was born of a woman. He he developed in a woman's womb, was born the way that all humans are born. The Bible tells us that he was born a baby. And then we see Jesus, not much of his middle life, but we see him as a grown-up man. So like a normal human being, Jesus grew from a, a baby through a boyhood, through boyhood, all the way to being a man. We learn that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature like a normal human being does, which means his, his intellect and his reasoning ability and his, his, just his ability to communicate and carry on as a person in the world grew as he grew, as he aged. He had emotion. He got angry and w- without sinning. Um, he rejoiced with his friends. He endured pain in his body. He got tired. He ate and drank. Jesus was a full human being. He died like we do. But Jesus was 100% God. The prophets prophesied about Jesus hundreds of years before he was born, saying, One is coming who will be born in Bethlehem. The, the, the angels and the shepherds and the magi and, uh, is that it? Angels, shepherds, magi? They all came and they, they heard the announcement of his birth and they came at varying stages of that young life to see the one who, who was promised. The, the magi followed a, a star. God spoke from heaven. At one point in Jesus' life saying, this is, this is not just a human being, this is my son of whom I am well pleased. Jesus, who was God, did miracles. He did miracles to the effect that no man could do them. He healed people. He said, be healed from afar, and a person was healed. He took a little bit of bread and fish and multiplied it so thousands of people could eat. He walked on water. Try that. 
He caused a person to be resurrected from the dead. Jesus resurrected from the dead himself. Jesus was fully man. Jesus was fully God. So it's rightful to, for Jesus to pray that God would glorify himself in the same sense that the Father is, is glorified. God is a Trinitarian God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All three are worthy of glory. And so Jesus is praying, and he's praying specifically for glory. He's asking the Father um, to glorify him so that he can in turn glorify God in his life and in his being in, in two different places or two different realms. And the first place is on earth. Look at, uh, we already read verse 1. Let's read verse 1 again. Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may be glorified. Go to verse 4. I glorify you on earth. That's the place that Jesus is, is asking. He's saying, hey, I've done all that you've asked me to do. Glorify me on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And so, I mean, what is the work that God has given Jesus to do? What, what is that work? Throughout his life and ministry, Jesus constantly referred to being sent to, to earth from heaven by the Father, and he was on a mission. John 9, 4 says this, that Jesus must work the works of him who sent me. And so is this work referring to, I mean, his, his life, what he did when he was on the earth, or is it referring to his death? That's a rhetorical question. Obviously, the answer is yes. It's, it's like, yeah, both and. He, he glorified God by what he did on earth. He also glorified God by what he did in his death. And so Jesus here is praying before these disciples. He's reflecting back on his life. And this is what he's reflecting back on. He's reflecting back on the fact that he took up human nature. The, the theological word for that is he's condescended. He came from uh, a place of transcendence where he was up far above life that we could ever imagine. And he lowered himself to become a part of the creation that he had created, walking in our flesh, put our skin on, eating our food, things that God would not do. Jesus, at some point in his life, when he was commissioned by God the Father to, to go and go on this, this saving rescue mission for humanity, uh, he was um, um, brought into the wilderness by Satan and using the word of God, he rebuked Satan by saying, hey, the, the, it's written in the word. It's written in the word. He's reflecting back on that. He's reflecting back on his perfect lifelong obedience to both the letter and the spirit of the law. You know, I mean, the law had a lot of rules in it and Jesus fulfilled every one of those perfectly, not as God, but as a man. He's looking perhaps at all the mundane things that happen in life for which Jesus did perfectly as a human being. Think about this. Um, his, his parents didn't get upset with him because he sinned. In a, I mean, he didn't talk back to his parents. He, he wouldn't have gotten into a, a, sub, a sibling rivalry such that he like, wanted to beat up one of his, one of his brothers or sisters. Uh, Jesus would have, um, he would have gone through puberty without, you know, like weirding out like most middle and high schoolers do. And it, I mean, y'all, y'all, y'all don't have kids that age. All right. Life changes at middle school. Like this school is full of this, like these kids, like going through these stages. And it only exacerbates once they get to high school and get busy. Jesus would have navigated that just like like God. He would have navigated it perfectly. Zits and all. Think about that. Jesus got that. Don't think about that. He was human. He got all that stuff happened to Jesus, but somehow he, he did it naturally. He did it perfectly. And he's reflecting on all that. I've done all those things that you've asked me to do, Father, and I've been a human uh, exactly how I'm supposed to be. But he also glorified God in his miracles. Think back to his first miracle. Jesus uh, is at a wedding with his family and some of his friends. They run out of wine. His mom comes up to him and says, hey, they, they need some help. And this is what Jesus says at the end of that, that he didn't do that just to do it. He did it because God wanted to manifest his glory and he wanted his disciples to believe in him. Fast forward to the very last miracle. Jesus has risen, uh, raised Lazarus from the dead. And he says of that miracle that this sickness will not end in death. It's for the glory of God. And so Jesus lived life as a human being, fully man, fully God. And he fulfilled the work by living all of his life to the glory of God. But he also fulfilled the work of, of, of glorifying 
the father in his death. And that's what we've read in verse one. We've beat verse one up, but look at it one more time. So Jesus was praying to the father and he said, father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may be glorified. If you've been tracking in the gospel of John, that that phrase, the hour has come or the, the time has not yet come, has come up a lot. Every previous time, uh, Jesus has something's happened. At, at, at the instant in Canaan and Galilee, Mary comes to him, his mom comes to him and says, Jesus, they need you to help. And he sort of bites back at his mom and says, woman, what have I do to, how to have, what have I to do with this? My time has not yet come. He's, uh, he multiplies the, the loaves and he pronounces himself as the bread of life. And then he starts to say some crazy words. He's like, all right, so if anyone hungers, uh, and, and comes to me and believes in me, um, that's, that's where you get true nourishment. But even more so, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people are like, what in the world are you talking about? We're not cannibals. And they wanted to kill him. Right? And then later on, um, Jesus was, uh, he, he, he said, I'm the light of the world. And they didn't like how he presented himself. He was saying that I'm God himself and they wanted to arrest him. In each one of these instances, Jesus was able to escape. And the, the, the phrase that we get is his time had come. His hour had not come. But right here is something different going on. It says his hour has come. So Jesus is saying, I'm, uh, it's time. I'm willing to lay down my life and I'll do it willingly. Jesus says the hour has come. The, the time that all history has been looking toward is about to happen. Sin entered the world in Genesis chapter three. In Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise that the, the, that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent and he would reverse all the, all the things that had happened in the world because of sin. The prophets foretold of one who would come as a suffering servant and who would die for the sins of the people. And Jesus is saying, the hour has come. I, I'm, I'm that one and I am here to do what the Father has required for me to do. Ultimately, we see a culmination of Jesus receiving glory and bringing glory to the Father as he goes to the cross. At the cross, we see the full extent of the love the Father has for his world. We see his hatred for sin. He diverted all the wrath of God that's due us because of our sin, and he put it on Jesus. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was Jesus receiving all the darkness that's in our world. Your own sin, the sin of everyone that would think they're, they're doing right in the name of God. Jesus received that on the cross, and the Father turned his face away, as we sang earlier. And so Jesus is saying, Father, glorify me so that I can glorify you. And, and would you do that on earth? There's another place that Jesus asked for glory, another realm. And that we see that in verse five, verse five. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so Jesus is asking God to to restore to him the glory and splendor that he had before the world began. I mean, how glorious was that? Can you imagine being in some existence outside of this world, creating the world and then entering into it and succumbing to the thing that you had created. It's, it's, it's just an unfathomable thought. And so Jesus is asking God to restore all that was before in his life, before he emptied himself of his glory. That's how Paul puts it in Philipp, uh, the, the, the letter to the Philippians. Look at these words. And so Paul says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Uh, the, the King James Version uses the word humbled himself. Some of you might be using the NIV, the New International Version. It uses a different phrase for this. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So what did Jesus empty himself of? I mean, did Jesus, did he, did he, Take away his divinity. I just told you he was half a you know, fully man, fully God. And he was both of those at the same time. Did, was he like half God, half man? No, he's not. He, he emptied himself of his glory. There's this, uh, there's this neat um, passage. Neat, I, you can't call the Bible neat. Um, God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 33. That's a better way to say it. And uh, Moses has gotten the Ten Commandments. He's been on Mount Sinai. He come, uh, he's up there for a long time, 40 whole days and 40 whole nights. 
And the Israelites don't know what to do. So they start partying. They make a golden calf. It just comes up out of the ground. They start worshiping it. Moses comes down with, with tablets that God has written on with his, his own finger. And 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 like Moses goes like, but wow, he's like, what in the world? And he breaks the tablets. Um, God sends a plague, kills off thousands of them. And then Moses goes and intercedes for the people. He goes into the tent and ministers in the presence of God and said, Lord, all right, forgive them. And then the next scene we see is Moses is uh, he's in an intimate. We don't know exactly where he is. He's in an intimate um, setting with God. He's about to be to be sent back up on Mount Sinai. And Moses asked these words. He said, Lord, show me your glory. And God, you know, they go back and forth. But God basically says, Moses, no one's seen my face. No one's seen me face to face and lived. But this is what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover, I'll cover you with my hand. God doesn't have hands. This is anthropomorphism. God um, saying, uh, using human, giving human terms to describe who he is. So God covers Moses with his hand and then allows Moses to see his backside. Why did Jesus divulge? Why did he empty himself of his glory? Because no one is able to see the full glory of God and live. And you got to appreciate our Savior for that. You know, there's there's no sign on Jesus. He didn't have this A-frame with a bullhorn. I'm God. Worship me. He, that's that's not how Jesus came to the earth. He looked like a normal. Jewish man, you would have been able to pass him along the road and not think anything of him. And so those who understood who Jesus was got that by revelation. And so Jesus had to empty himself of his glory so that he could even take up human nature so he could become one of us. Jesus had to empty himself of his glory to allow us to draw near to him the same way that God allowed Moses to draw near to him in the Old Testament. I think that's why when Jesus was resurrected, you know, remember that scene? The disciples didn't recognize him. Once he resurrected, he uh, was in a resurrected body and they, they, they kind of knew it was Jesus, but they didn't. They didn't recognize him in his glorified state. Fast forward, John, the same writer of this gospel, gets a vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter one, verses 12 through 18. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were, were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame, uh, a flame of fire. His feet were like brownish burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held up seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is a picture of of the glorified Jesus. This is this is John's. He's he's trying to use words to convey what he saw. This glorious picture of Jesus, not on this earth, but but in heaven. And I'm sure even the words that John used came very short of what Jesus actually looked like as a glorified human being, God. The one who was buried rose again and exalted at the right hand of God. That's what John is trying to give us a picture of. This is what he looked like. And and really what we read in Revelation from John is the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer in verse 5. Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me and restore to me the glory that I had before this world ever existed. That's it right there. This is what Jesus looks like now. And so here's the, here's, the, here's the big idea. I've said this a couple times already. The glory of the Father is dominated in the, in the life of Jesus. It dominated his life. We see that in how he lived. We see that in how he prayed. His prayers tell us what he valued. He was about the glory 
of the Father. And so here's here's my big point. If if this was what Jesus was about, and Jesus was the epitome, he 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 walked in human shoes perfectly. This is the this is the exhortation. We should be we should walk like this as well. We should value what Jesus valued. If the glory of the Father is what dominated Jesus' life, that means my life, Jeff's life, Marcus's life, Greg's life, Mark's life, all of your lives are supposed to be dominated by the glory of God. That's why we're here. That's why we live. And those songs, that sounds strange, doesn't it? That the totality of my life is supposed to be lived to the glory of God. But I would tell you that's what the Bible says that we're supposed to be about, that we're not supposed to be so much about our own glory, our own houses, our own kids, even the glory of our own church. That we're supposed to be about the glory of Jesus the Christ, because that's what it truly means to be human. Uh, my concern is this. Uh, we hear this word glory, I mean, especially if you're brought up in church. I mean, when I, uh, I didn't go to church, you know, every week I, I went to church kind of often with my grandma, but I wasn't a Christian. I was far from God. And, uh, you know, the old saints, they used to, I mean, when they, when they got in the spirit, you know, they, they just yell out, glory! I mean, they just yell it out, right? It's like, what in the world is going on? What got into them? Like, they get electrocuted? I mean, that's what you think about as a kid, right? You can't help it. Our lives are supposed to be dominated by the glory of God. And I would, I would offer to you, uh, you know, those little old ladies in that Baptist church. They, their lives were dominated by the glory of God. And when they were reminded by scripture or a song or a testimony of a saint, they couldn't help but to rejoice and, and extol the glory of God. But here's the, here's the problem with us. Sometimes we hear this word glory, you know, Christian or not, and it just becomes white noise. Y'all know what white noise is? So my wife has this app on her iPhone. It's like sometimes when the house is too quiet late at night and you can hear the creaks and stuff in the house with the furnace going on and off, she'll turn the white noise on to, to sort of, you know, even everything out. Um, we just moved this summer to right over here, but we used to live a mile away, like a whole mile away, same zip code. And we used to be close enough to the metro and the VRE that we would hear the train come by. And when we first start, when we first lived there, I mean, we heard it all the time. I mean, and it would wake us up. I mean, you're like, dang, we're close to the train. Um, but then all of a sudden, it went away. We didn't hear it anymore. White noise. All right, military example. Uh, I'm an artilleryman at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Spent a lot of time in both those places. Um, you hear these bangs. Boom! Boom! All the time. And our, our, I remember our, uh, our families would come to visit us, and they would hear the, the, they would hear the artillery impacting. Boom! And they're like, what was that? Like, y'all under attack? What's going on? And we'd be like, what are you talking about? We didn't even hear it anymore. It's white noise. I'd say, that's the sounds of freedom. <laughs> it's the sounds of freedom. Thank God for the freedom that, <laughs> to, to, to let that artillery impact. White noise. White noise is, is when everything around you just disappears. You get used to it. And I think in the same way, sometimes, especially for those of us who've been in the church for a long time, uh, you hear a sermon about the glory of God and you think, oh man, the pastor's at it again. He's like gonna like, he's like gonna get into his thing and tell me I gotta do something else for God or I gotta think something else about God. It just becomes white noise. And, and that's dangerous. That's a dangerous place for you to be as a believer. Uh, one of my contemporary mentors is a guy, named, a guy by the name of Dr. Sam Storm. Saw him this weekend at our conference, and he says these words, the primary reason that people are in bondage to sin is that people are bored with God. The primary reason that people are in bondage to sin is that people are bored with God. That's meant to be a rebuke that just like slits you right at the gut and just cuts you open if you're a Christian. Let me translate this. When we don't live for the glory of God, we allow lesser gods to take over our lives. What's a lesser God? It's that little sin that you can't find that you that you find in your life that you can't get rid of. It's it's that habit or that addiction that you keep coming back to. It's it's that thing that occupies your time. It's your iPhone. It's your hobby. It's it's not leaving work on time. 
because you just got to get that last thing done. Dr. S- Dr. Storms is, is arguing that the only way that we can get rid of the, the sin in our life is when your heart gets captivated by Jesus. You exchange glories. I'm going to give up the glory for all these things in my life that might be good things, but they're just taking up a lot of time from the main thing, glorifying Jesus. As long as your heart is not captivated by Jesus, we all keep going back to those lesser glories. You glory in your sin, not in God. Now, we're a diverse group, diverse not ethnic, ethnically. We're diverse in that um, we, we're at different points of maturation in our walks with Christ. Some of you have been in the, in the church. Some of you have been in the Lord, in the faith for a long time. You know, you know Jesus. You know him well. Some of you are just feeling it out. There's perhaps some of you that were invited here that you don't know God at all. And you I mean, you're even hesitant. But, you, are, you know, thank God you're here. We're glad that you're here. Um, and because we're a, a diverse group, um, we all have different ranges of maturation regarding this idea of glory. Some of y'all are like, well, I have I don't even have a reference point. I mean, he's getting all excited about this word glory. I don't even know what he's talking about. <laughs> and it, it's okay. It's all right. Here's the deal. This is what's true. Regardless of how much you understand glory, you were made for glory and you live for it. Let me give you an illustration. It's basketball season. Peter and I were in a hotel room. He got excited because the Carolina Tar Heels were playing. We couldn't even get the game on our TV. I come from ACC country. Uh, you know, uh, my mom was born in Chapel Hill. Uh, my dad grew up in Durham. You got Duke in Durham, Carolina in Chapel Hill. My wife, unfortunately, went to NC State. You got them in North Carolina. It's like basketball heaven. And I would, I would argue with you, when you go to a, a game like that, perhaps you had a, you know, a, a football team or some kind of team in your, in your city, and you just went to the game, it was just like, man, I can't wait to get in there. You got 40 to 80,000 people. Your team is, is doing well. They might even win. And you, everybody's like, stand up. Yeah! <laughs> Guess what that is? That's, that's glory. That's, that's glory. I mean, especially if your team wins, you, you go on a vacation. No one picks out a vacation that's like the worst place to go in the world. Right. You look at you're looking through magazines. You go on the Internet. You want to go on a place that you get off the plane. You get in the car and you get out. And it's like, oh, this is amazing. Wow. You want your lip to fall to the floor. You're like, wow, that's glory. That is, that's glory. These places are glorious. That's why we love to go to the mountains or go to the ocean. Those, these places are stable. They're unmovable. God had to have formed them for them to be there. Whether you can define glory or not doesn't matter. You were made for glory and you're living for it. We, we long for glory, not just in sports. We long for it in nature. We long for it in music. I heard some of the best music this weekend from some of the best musicians that I've ever heard. It was just like, man, it was awesome. We, we, we see glory in art. We see it in the sunrise and sunset. Sometimes we see it even in, in our careers when we're at the top of our game and we're doing that thing that we think we're created to do. But here's the thing. If any of these become what you live for, they'll end up being destructive. That's what glory leads to if you're glorying in the wrong thing. Living for any of these things is to live for the glory of man. And, and if you haven't lived long enough, let me tell you, because I've, I've, I've seen this, I've done it. Living for the glory of man will only lead you down the wrong road. You're going to get disappointed. You're going to be not you're going to end up not being satisfied. You're going to be left saying, you know, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. And there is. There's an obscure Old Testament book. Called, uh, it's, called, it's written by prophet Habakkuk. Isn't that a fun word to say? Habakkuk. I love saying it. Uh, parents, y'all are still having babies? There it is. That's, that's a baby name. Habakkuk. Can you imagine? Habakkuk is outside. You need him to come inside. He's like, Habakkuk, get in here. Habakkuk. I'm sorry. And so Habakkuk is, <laughs> he's prophesying, beautiful prophecy. He's prophesying destruction on Assyria um, because they, they were the, the nation that God used to take Israel out when they were in rebellion. 
And he's saying, all right, you went too far. I'm going to send Babylon to destroy you. And in the midst of that, God uses Habakkuk to to give a vision for the world. And here's the vision that Habakkuk has for the world. Show me that verse, guys. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that, I don't know, just beautiful words. That the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you imagine? The, there's, the earth is more water than it is land right now. But can you imagine just the glory of the Lord overflowing beyond the waters that are currently here to everything that... That's what we need for our world right now. Do we have this? Heck no. Do we long for it? Absolutely. What is Habakkuk? What is God giving Habakkuk a prophecy for? He's giving him a prophecy for the thing that we absolutely necessarily need in our world. This is our greatest human need that we would see and have an intimate relationship where the glory of the Lord spreads. It pervades all the land. So let me conclude with this. How do, I mean, how do we get that? How do we join Jesus in his glory as he's glorifying the father, but also realize we're the ones that are supposed to be glorifying him? Because we're going to learn later, we, we receive some of that glory and it's on display in our lives throughout as we live for Jesus. The first thing you got to receive the gift. This is an interesting chapter. This is an interesting passage. There's bookends of glory, verses one through five. And then in the middle, Jesus starts teaching. I don't know what he's doing, but he starts teaching in the middle of his prayer. And so he says, I'm going to get a running start. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Verse two, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. Verse three, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The way the son glorifies the father is by completing the, completing the mission that the father has given him to do. And what's that? God gave Jesus authority so that he could grant eternal life to all those that the father would, would give him. There's people like you in here. Many people out that aren't in here, they don't even know God has get, that that God has given them to Jesus yet, that will at some point through our witness come to faith. That's Jesus' mission. And, and then he goes on, he defines eternal life. You know, a lot of times we define eternal life by a length of time. I'm going to live forever and ever, amen. That's not the way Jesus de- defines eternal life here. This is what he says. He says in verse 3, eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is not some duration of time, although it can be that that we get to spend with Jesus forever, it's, it's better than that because God dwells outside of time. Think about it. He's dwelt forever. He only created time for us. God doesn't need time, and we won't need time as well. What will be important as we glory in God? This is what's going to be important, having an intimate relationship and fellowship with God through Jesus. That's why Jesus says in, in chapter 3, verse 36 of John, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Eternal life is this present reality. It's not past or future. It's, it's like right now. And so knowing God is, is not the way to eternal life. It, it is eternal life. You see the nuance there? A lot of times we think that when I die, my body's going into the ground. My soul goes to heaven, and that's going to be the big change. I'm going to wait. The, Jesus returning, the resurrection of the living and the dead. I'm going to have my new body glorified, living with Jesus forever. And that's not really what he's painting right here. He's saying the the most glorious thing for you happens right here on earth when you receive Jesus. It happens at your new birth. Second Corinthians five seventeen. For anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. He's made you new already. You already have the deposit by the Holy Spirit of the, the, the glory of God in your being. And you have the capacity to not only glorify God, but to glory for him on the earth. That's his call on your life. But, but there's, there's, there's something that has to happen before you're able to, to live this out. You have to receive the gift. You got to receive the gift, the gift of eternal life. 
And, and it's, it's a gift. You ever been given a gift? You ever like said, no, I don't want that gift. When God gives us the gift of eternal life, it's a gift in the sense that we don't, we don't work for it. We can't earn it. He has to gift it to us. How does he gift it to us? By, by, by giving us the opportunity to, to trust in Jesus. There's no amount of effort, no cleaning up your life is required. It's about what Jesus does on your behalf. But to receive the gift, you got to believe that there's something wrong with you. Um, so picture this. Later, later this afternoon, a friend of yours, uh, you, you're going to meet up with him at Pete's, my favorite coffee shop down in Hilltop Village. And uh, you're going to have some coffee together. He says, hey, man, I've been thinking about you all week and I got you a present. Uh, I went and got you some mouthwash. He's like, what in the world? That's that's his gift to you. Now, tell you, tell you what, if somebody gives you some mouthwash in order for you to receive the gift, you got to acknowledge something that person is saying to you. Your breath stinks, right? <laughs> Your breath stinks. You need a mint. Now, you need a, you need a mouthwash. Here's what Jesus is saying to us in, in the love of the Spirit. He said, you stink. Your mouth, you're, you're not, not only does your mouth stink, your, your life stinks. You need some like holistic mouthwash to cover just not your mouth, but all of you. This is a slam on us. And in order for us to receive the gift, we have to admit that something's wrong about us. And that wrong is our sin, our willful disobedience of what God has established as his law in the Bible. Our sin separates us from the source of life. The only way to receive the gift, the gift of eternal life, is when you own that you're a sinner in need of God's grace. But when you receive it, it becomes such good news. Here's the second thing. The first thing, you got to receive the gift. The second thing, and I'll close with this, you have to receive the work. Jesus is praying. I know I haven't talked about that that much. We'll get into it next week and the week after that. Jesus is praying. And even for Jesus, this is what prayer does. It shapes us. It changes us. One of the reasons why God encourages you to pray is not so that you can get what you ask for when you pray. That's a benefit of it. But more importantly, the prayer itself is going to change you so that you want less of what you ask for, but you want more of God himself. That's what prayer is all about. And I think it's the same thing for Jesus. Jesus didn't just come up with this great plan for himself, living perfectly, going to the cross. He received that from the Father. The theologians call this the the covenant of of redemption, that way before anything happened, that God got together with the Holy Spirit and Jesus. And it's like, this is the way it's going to go down. And, and we're the manifestation of, of what they came up with. And Jesus is receiving the plan of the Father, and he's submitting to it, even to the point of, of his death. He was in submission to God. He stepped into what God had for him to do. That's the way Jesus glorified the Father. How do you glorify the Father? Step into what he has for you. You know, a lot of times we are so fixated on what's going on in the future uh, Lord, I'm praying for this. I want this to be right here and this right here. And I want my kids to do good right here. We're, we're fixated on what we're good at, how we're gifted, how God, I mean, the, the, the skills we've earned. We think about how God has called us and, and God wants to point you to, wait, wait, stop. What, what, don't, don't miss, don't be so fixated on what's ahead that you miss what's going on right now. I want you to glorify me in the very simple things that you do in your life. Here's how we can glorify God. We glorify the Father by believing the gospel of the Son whom he sent. That's the start place. If you have not yet believed in the Son, received the gift, you can't rightly glorify God. We glorify God by pursuing lives of holiness and obedience to his word. That, holy, that word holiness, that's not a pretty word. We don't, we don't like that word because it, says, it suggests that I'm supposed to do some things and not do some things. But that's what God prescribes in his word for us as, as believers We display God's glory by laboring together to build up the church and obey the Great Commission, making disciples of all kinds of people through our witness to the gospel. How do we glorify God? We do those things. And what happens when we do those things? God takes us into all these other areas where where by our life he'll be glorified. But in a a neat sense, he, he also allows us to share in the glory. We are the image of God himself on the earth for all to see. 
Let's live that. On the very night that Jesus prayed these great words, asking the Father to glorify him, that he could glorify the Father in turn. Before that, a couple hours before that, he was eating dinner with his disciples and he broke bread. He took a piece of bread, broke it. He lifted it up and said, this is my body, which is which is broken for you. They didn't know what he was talking about. But he says, remember it and remember me when you do it. He was saying, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to ultimately glorify the Father by dying on a, on a cross. I'm going to endure your pain because you deserve this. I'm going to do it. You didn't earn it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. And then he took a cup of wine. He said, this represents my, the blood of my covenant. I'm going to spill my blood for you. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. I'm going to do it for you just as you believe in me. And he gave us these symbols to be reminded of his glory so that we'll lay our own glory down. Because when you lay yours down, at some point, he allows you to share in his. And so as we close, I'm going to pray. And then you're welcome to sing a song with our worship team. But more importantly, receive communion. Lay your glory down. Glorify Jesus. Be reminded of his glory and his gospel and rejoice. Father, we thank you for your word. May it, may we, maybe, may we rejoice in it. May it rub against us in those places where it's supposed to rub against us. Lord, I, w- I pray that it would encourage us. Uh, but more importantly today, as we, it was, as we see Jesus praying for glory, God, may in our lives we both give him the glory that he deserves, but also know that he allows us to share in that, that a world might see a God who is absolutely glorious. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.